Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast, hosted by Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine and want to welcome you back to our spring session and a really special episode we have for you today. As you know, we usually start with the unique or different bonus episode. Today, we have something a little different. Our GWIC producer, Tom Fox, recently interviewed Edie Edens. She's a longtime compliance professional in in human subject research compliance. Tom immediately reached out to us and said this interview turned into a very GWIC style experience. And because uh, Edie's story um, and her work really made her a great woman in compliance. He asked if he could post it on GWIC and We said yes, absolutely. We're very excited about this unique experience, and we're really excited to start the season. Um, And this is our first ever guest-hosted GWIC podcast. Thank you so much, Tom Fox. And Tom Fox is visiting with Edie Edens and talking about her career in human subject research compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Edie Edens. If you are on LinkedIn and compliance and healthcare and law, um, you know of Edie because she is one of the best and most active users on LinkedIn, a great addition to the compliance community. I wanted to have her on this pod for a long time. So Edie, first of all, an incredibly long-winded introduction. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. You really, that's that's too kind of you. I was going to say, I am one voice among so very many of us in healthcare and compliance and just absolutely flattered to be on the show. I, I did forget to ask you, are you from Oklahoma? I am originally Muskogee, Oklahoma. It is not just a Merle Haggard song. It is a real town. (laughs) And I was born and raised there by two Texans who were dying to get back to Texas. So actually, I have no biological family left there. And they are all either in Texas or out east or even further west. (laughs) But I left for the last... Muskogee, Oklahoma, home of the Creek Indian Nation and the home of my last of my family's head rights. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. See, now, I was the, like, one kid in all of Muskogee who was growing up who has not a drop of Native American blood. We are 100% European. My mother was first generation out of Italy, uh, and the rest of the family actually came over on the Mayflower from Germany and England, right, and are so incredibly assimilated at this point that other than being proud of the genealogy and the Mayflower trip, right, like, we're very American. Um, And so I grew up around it. Uh, in fact, my college uh, boyfriend uh, was half, um, and I got to, in college, because I went to Oklahoma State, they had a Native American literature program that I got to be a part of that was incredibly fascinating, and do research and learn even more in that space. And then even my first year of law school at the University of Oklahoma, you know, they're obviously known for their Native American law program. It's phenomenal. Um, but it's very interesting, because the first class I had when I transferred to IU's law school to pursue human rights law internationally was about different types of law that operate such as tribal law, such as sovereign state uh, that native American reservations hold in the United States. And so the professor said, you know, so anyone in here of native American lineage or, or heritage. And I just naturally expected like every other class I'd ever taken, like the whole class to raise their hand because I grew up in Muskogee. 
Um, I was the odd man out. I was the weird one. Like, what do you mean you're not part of a nation? You mean, you, you mean you're Native American. They just right. didn't track it on the papers. You just didn't keep your papers. No, no, I'm truly not a drop. And I know it for a fact. And so when I'm sitting in this classroom in Indianapolis and suddenly no one raises their hand, it was like, oh, oh, this is really a cultural situation. Like even my, so my husband's from Indiana, Indiana, from the Indianapolis area, born and raised and very proud Hoosier. And I've taken him back, of course, to Oklahoma. And I'm one of my diehard, longest childhood friends. Her husband uh, has tribal benefits for their children. And so they have the tribal license plates because that's part of the benefits. And my husband and I are following them somewhere, you know, in Tulsa. And he says to me, what is with their license plate? It looks different than all the other Oklahoma license plates. And it occurs to me that while we do have Native American populations in Indiana, it's just not the same prevalence as that particular geography. And he was just never exposed. He would have had no right. reason to have that where he was growing up. And so it's just a real, it's a whole, you know, like behind the curtain, you're either you've lived in that world or you haven't. Um, and it's incredibly fascinating. I, I think that some of the culture I was exposed to just by the fact I was born there, just by the fact that I had so many Native Americans living alongside me was phenomenal, right? And I realize now how much of that my kid won't know unless I make a real point to teach him because it's not going to be standard curriculum here. You're not going to have the weak assembly in third grade being beautiful cultural tribal dancing, you know, by um, Native American tribal chiefs. I, I mean, like that, that you take that so for granted when you live there, like that there's all these different things happening and all these different events and then you move somewhere it's not and you're like, oh, so anyway, I could go on, but I know that's not what we're going to talk about today. Not entirely. <laughs> so my grandfather immigrated from Italy and he married my grandmother in Tulsa uh, and he had changed his name to Fox. So a lot of people just assumed, oh, that side of the family. Like, no, no, no. He just immigrated from Italy and changed his name. Uh, to my eternal regret, our uh, royalty mm -hmm. checks ran out five years before my father died. They all did. His last check was two cents. So, uh, but uh, they lived on that for a long time. Uh, so, but enough of that. Uh, now that we know about our uh, collective mm -hmm. Oklahoma connection. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what did you study at Oklahoma State? I was a small world. We have some overlap. <laughs> now, what did you study at OSU and then what got you up to IU? You know, it was funny. I went there with every intention. Yeah. So I had every intention when I went off to school at Oklahoma State of studying science and going into medicine. I'm from a family of Healthcare folks, whether they're, you know, nurses, NNPs, MDs, um, healthcare attorneys, some of them all of the above because they're just overachievers. And so, I, you know, I grew up around the hospital. I grew up around a physician practice. I feel very at home in that space. And I was very interested specifically in cardiology. Something about the heart and the way it worked just absolutely fascinated me starting around nine or 10. Actually, I was pretty young uh, when I captured my, my inner nerd, right? And it was this very interesting turn of events that I was chugging along, <clears throat> going pre-med, going cardio, uh, every intention of med school. When I was a sophomore, I got really sick and it was very unexpected. It was nothing fatal, but it was something I was going to have to learn how to live with, right? Uh, and it was significantly difficult to diagnose, at least initially. And so my dad, being a physician and also an attorney, said, you know, look, you need to very intentionally structure your spring, spring semester with like your liberal arts, your humanities. This is not the time to be taking OPM. Um, you know, you can always bounce back, but we want to get your health under control and then, you know, not hurt your GPA. Really smart, great advice. Totally took it. And at the end of the spring semester, I realized that was the first semester I'd had fun in school in a really long time. 
like not just done my homework because it was due, but like got up and wanted to go to class, like was excited to actually go to class and thought, oh, I didn't know that that was an option. Like I, I was doing fine in science, but I had no idea you could actually like love what you were doing. You didn't just have to do it. Um, and so we get to the end of the semester. I'm feeling much better. You know, my dad's having the, all right, back to science we go, pep talk. And he was never like pushing the idea. In fact, if anything, he was pushing me out of medicine because he saw what was happening to private practice and court reform. Uh, and I said, I don't, I don't think I want to go back. Like, I don't want to go back to that whole science thing. Like I was good at it, but I don't really want to do it. And I'm not sure what that means because right now I'm listed as being an English major and I have no idea other than possibly teaching high school or college, what you would do, you know, with that degree, but I want to explore it. Um, and I came home, you know, a semester later and told him for sure, I'm going to get this English degree and I'm going to be a creative writing major is what I'm going to do. And he was like, I would fail. And of course I had an epic, you know, fail in life. Oh my God. And he was like, Katie, I just mean fail. I'm a really bad writer. I don't know where you came from. Our whole family is math and science, but like you do you, you're very good at it. You're obviously loving it. So, you know, you'll figure it out along the way. So did that, uh, intended to get a journalism and PR degree because I did recognize I wanted to keep the doors open. Um, but uh, there's a whole story I won't go into there, but I nixed myself out of that by telling an advisor off when she told me I couldn't study abroad and instead I needed to stay in Stillwater one summer. Um, and instead I studied abroad and took, you know, rolled the dice, took my chances, said goodbye to the journalism degree and had this incredible experience at the Rory Peck Trust, which I just can't say enough about, uh, in terms of really learning about the journalism stories that we get from the front lines. And this is particularly relevant given what we have going on in Ukraine and Russia, no matter where you stand on the issue. But the individuals that are going to get you the stories that are most meaningful, that are going to get down to the nitty gritty truth of what is actually happening boots on the ground in these war-torn locations and very contentious situations is not going to be your Saturday evening reporter from NBC or Reuters because they come with such an entourage, they'll never get to the actual news. It's going to be an independent journalist who's a contractor, like I am now, who goes out with no backup and no security and puts their life on the line and gets you that story and then they sell it to NBC. But when they get shot, when they get assassinated for reporting the story, when they get killed and they're the sole you know, caregiver for their family or provider for their family, NBC, Reuters, BBC at the time weren't exactly offering to help pay for the funeral or help the family because you were a contractor. Uh, and so it had become this kind of almost own human rights crisis within the reporting of human rights crises. And that is what that particular trust worked to raise awareness, as well as to offer funds to those families who were trying to bounce back from the death of their loved one when it had come at the hands of these types of situations. So I did that. It was a life changer. It was like international human rights law all the way. Where do I go with this passion? Now I've put my finger on what I can use my writing for and my ability, but like, I don't know what that degree looks like. And so I was actually pursuing master's degrees in foreign countries intentionally that were focused on international relations, thinking that was my segue in and was looking potentially at maybe like some public policy type programs that you would get a master's. And the more homework I did, um, the more I figured out a few things. A lot of those master's programs overseas don't transfer to a master's degree if you ever come back to the States. It's just another undergrad degree and it's a lot of money and a lot of effort. And I'd already been overseas, so I had a good feel for the travel. I wasn't worried about that, but I needed it to, to count. I'd been overseas enough and studied and traveled abroad enough to know that I loved it, 
but I was probably at some point going to live out my life in the United States. And so how was I going to make this work? And law school was the option. Both of my parents, my biological parents, went to law school when I was in high school. Um, they already had careers, and then they went back. And so they were graduating law school two weeks before I was graduating high school. So when I say I had a negative, <laughs> angst-ridden impression of the art of going to law school <laughs> in the same 10 years that my parents went to law school, uh, it was thick. I had no desire. I was not someone who wanted to go down that path. But it did make sense. And I got, because I was still state resident in Oklahoma, I got a full ride at OU. It's a phenomenal law school. Like we just said, it has some great programs in oil and gas, Native American, trying in international law at the time, but limited. It wasn't the focal point. We all knew that. But a full ride is a full ride. And your first year of law school is your first year of law school, no matter if you're at Princeton or public U. And so why not take that? And my ever practical father said, you get to the end of this year, you still really want to do it great. But what if you get to the end of this year and you don't even want to keep going? Or what if you get to the end of this year and you decide there's another type of law you want to do? And, you know, you might as well do this explore this exploration phase kind of for free, right? Or for a much reduced cost. So I did. But at the end of the year, it was like, yeah, I still really want to do this. And uh, my father thought I was once again crazy. I think I've given him multiple heart attacks, the truth be told. Because I got into American University, which, of course, is known for their international law program. And it was just a given. Like, of course, you'll go. That's what you'll do. Um, but I also got into Indiana University's McKinney School of Law because they have two schools of law. Uh, and it had a program in international human rights law. And I chose the latter um, for a lot of reasons, which I could spend a lot of time talking about. But in the first six to seven months I was here, I was already working with the United Nations in New York City and presenting live to the Human Rights Commission. And then I got to do it again in Geneva that summer. And it was truly the case of you have a very large program with everyone there trying to do it and the entire city is trying to do it versus you have a very small program with very few interests, but you can make a bigger impact. And I just could see the writing on the wall, uh, having been out of school long enough that that was a better fit for me. And so it was great. It was, that was what I graduated with. Here I am going to one of the nation's best health law schools, and I'm, I'm just barely even taking the classes, not pursuing that certificate at all. I graduate, it's 08, it's a recession, and the whole world just stopped. I mean, even the valedictorian of my graduating class got his law school, or his law firm offer rescinded and said, like, we'll talk to you next year. Good luck. There's nothing. There's nothing. I mean, it was, they could care less that you had a graduate degree, that you graduated top, you know, 5% or whatever you're supposed to do, that you had the law review, that, I mean, so what? We don't have any jobs. We don't have any jobs. And so I'm sitting there going, oh my God, oh my God, for the first time, all my rolling the dice is not working. And this is, there's nothing you could do to prevent it, right? And I'm seeing so many of my friends basically move home at like 25, which is, you know, not really the goal when you've just busted your butt in law school for three years. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's for me. I am going to pursue a JAG Corps offer because it's very reputable. It's highly respected. I have absolutely no qualms about being in the armed services and giving back. Obviously, that's part of my human rights drive. And so I decided to and was fortunate enough to receive an offer for the Air Force JAG Corps. And I had nine months before I was going to be shipped out of Indy permanently. And I was kind of like, well, we'll see. You know, if I have to wait tables, I'll wait tables. I'm not too proud. Um, and had a very dear friend who was the person who, you know, knew she wanted to be a healthcare attorney and research her whole life and ended up doing it. She was at the IU Academic Medical Center working for the IRB, the Institutional Review Board for Human Subjects Research Compliance, and said, I've got a nine-month contract gig. 
It's perfect for you. It's way better pay, way better experience. You can handle it. I can get you up to speed on the regulations since I know you didn't study them a lot. But the reason I'm coming to you is it's a really sensitive situation. It's a little politically dicey. And so we're really concerned about someone who could handle that kind of pressure and frankly, possibly having some really contentious conversations with, you know, physicians and researchers. And I was like, oh, you mean like dinner at my house? Like, oh, yeah, like I got this. No problem. All right. Where do I got to start reading and learning? And that was it. Uh, it was a nine month contract and I stayed for 10 years and ended up turning down the Jaguar offer I had. Uh, and I'm basically because I came in as a consultant, even once I was offered a full time role, I was still very much working on the same leadership and treated like a consultant. Right. So I was moved through the different human research protection offices like the IRB, like auditing, research integrity, clinical research compliance, conflicts of interest. And some of those offices I even helped create were, you know, reorganized as I was leaving and creating new roles. And about seven years in, I realized I was probably more built for entrepreneur life long term. But by then I got, you know, the husband, the mortgage, the dog, the kid on, you know, the way kind of thing. So I was like, I really don't want to leave Indy. It's a great biosciences life, you know, city. Um, but it's very sponsor driven if you're not at the academic medical center. So most of my expertise was only relevant for an IU and was going to be way too much for the other universities in town or the hospital systems in town, given their volume of research. So I really started promoting myself for a school of medicine role, right? Where I could get into a department and oversee the research site. That way I would learn that side of the compliance. And then I'd be marketable if I left IU. And it ended up, I became the first quality and compliance manager for the Comprehensive Cancer Center at IU, Simon. Uh, and I was over 700 FDA-regulated trials, um, including phase one, like overnight. I mean, it was it was the steepest learning curve I've ever been up against. It was harder than law school. Um, and it was amazing. I, I mean, I understand completely now why people say, you know, you either are oncology or you are not. Um, it's very intense. You've never met folks who are in such a tight timeline with their patients and are so darn aggressively passionate about reaching them. Um, and then I left. 2017 was when I went to first class and uh, started doing really, truly much of the same work, right, that I've been doing for the last 10 years. Just I didn't want to do it only in an academic center. Um, I still heavily work with them, especially cancer centers in my client book. But I also wanted to work with the small non-attached research site, right? A physician practice that's trying to move into the space because their patients need it. Or maybe vendors who need help making better products to support us. I mean, why do we have to only do one type of compliance? Why can't we use that skill set to help new ventures um, and have a more 360 approach? And, and First Class was already operating in the area in terms of healthcare. They've been in the space since the 80s. But while having a lot of clients reading research, they hadn't like targeted a service line just to research. Does that make sense? That they had the clients, they just hadn't had a contractor come in with my expertise who was willing to say, let me expand your services. You're leaving money on the table. There's some great opportunities. So that was like a really long answer to your question. So a couple of things in there I want to follow up on. Number one, you said several times you were a consultant, you were perceived as a consultant, you were treated like a consultant, you saw yourself as a consultant. That really mirrors my post-corporate career over the past now 12 years. I, like you, am much more constitutionally uh, capable of being a consultant, probably institutionally. Uh, there's a reason I've worked for myself for 12 years, uh, as opposed to someone else. But it gives you a level of, or for me, it's given me a, a level of perspective. 
not only do I get to be an outsider observing, but I observe lots of different compliance programs, companies, projects, and that so that gives me a very well-rounded way to, to look at things. But it's mainly being an outsider, and I'm incredibly comfortable being an outsider. Probably something to do with my uh, uh, childhood. You don't get the feeling as much of being as a part of a team. Sometimes I do. But I was wondering uh, maybe your perspective on being a consultant as really the outside, almost impartial umpire, and what that what you can bring with that mindset to really any assignment. Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, it's one of the truly even being someone who fully appreciates emotional quotient and emotional intelligence when we talk about work and our environment and what that does, right, to our productivity, to our happiness, um, I undersold this because I have to admit I had let myself stay in situations that were not really the best for my particular constitution, like you said, for too long. By the time I decided to leave IU, like I probably should have pulled the trigger just a hair sooner. And so I was, I was in that frustrated kind of lashing out, like making decisions I thought about for a long time, but making them a little quicker than I normally do. And so I really undersold what you're talking about because I was so hungry for it. I wanted to be the outsider. Um, it is really hard. You know, there's, there's no easy way to do compliance. You're kind of always the bad guy. You're always perceived as, you know, the police, right? Um, and so there's this sense of if you're in an organization, are you more supported than if you're the outsider? And I frankly had begun to feel like an outsider and had often felt like an outsider, even though I was part of a larger organization. So for me, the way it worked in my mind was it's one thing for me to work with a client as I looked at it or be in an engagement and compliance, whether that's in-house, you know, outhouse as a consultant, however you want to look at that. If I get to have a little bit of say in who it is the client is, right, knowing that I'm going to work best with certain personalities, management styles, and frankly, folks who are genuinely committed to actually enacting compliance in their organization and doing it in very meaningful and sustainable ways. That doesn't mean spending a million dollars. I get that there is no money tree out back. Um, and if there is, you should like call me immediately. But when I do not find that environment present, it is much easier as a consultant to diplomatically find a way to say, this is probably not the right engagement for me, but let me make sure you're taken care of by someone else. Versus when you are in-house, you do not have that autonomy. And what I found in really large organizations that was particularly hard for me, um, I don't have any problem with the idea of having you know a boss or leadership. If anything, that level of mentorship is what got me where I am 100%. The mentorship I had the first few years I was at IU, I mean, I can't say enough about that leadership team. We are all still friends to this day because they are that phenomenal. And a lot of them still working in the space. But if your leadership changes, which when you're in a huge organization, it does, and it does frequently, and it has nothing to do with you and the work you're doing, right? It's politics, it's the vice president, you know, can only be vice president for a year before they have to time out due to the constitution. It can be any number of things. Um, who your new leadership is colors everything you're going to do. It changes what the focal point for compliance will be, what the budget will be, what the attitude will be. And so you are very often allowing your future, your destiny to be 100% controlled by whoever gets VP next. 
unless it's going to be you. And even if it is you, you won't have the autonomy if you're in a smaller organization that you would have, right? And so for me coming out, it wasn't so much about working for someone else or not working for someone else. If anything, I, I didn't want to go 100% on my own in the sense of I don't have an MBA and I didn't take those classes in school. And I am trying to start a family. Like there's only so much bandwidth that I have. Uh, but I want to pick very specifically who I work for. And I want that person to understand I need to pick very specifically the types of clients we engage for this to be successful and honor my experience in knowing who those are and who those aren't um, so that we can build something really meaningful. And if I need to give you a percentage of what I'm bringing in to make that happen and affordable for your organization, I don't have a problem in the world with that. That's just business. But I want to be supported. Like if I have to start it, if I have to build it, if I have to bring the people, if I have to bring the team, if I have to bring the clients, that's all something I'm okay with. But I'm not okay with like payroll, taxes, business cards, letterhead, right? Like I needed that shell and I needed someone who was going to give me the type of autonomy I needed to get this done, but also also check me, right? Like, like make sure when I'm signing up a new client, why did you pick this client as opposed to this other client? Do we really think that's the right engagement that we Thanks want? Thanks for joining like, us for this mentor episode me on of that Great Women in Compliance. Side, but we let me shine where I shine, right? Like I've already been put in charge of, of an entire comprehensive cancer center in terms of their compliance. I, I, I can handle business development. You know what I mean? Like I can handle writing SOPs for a research site. I do not need to be micromanaged while I do that. But I 100% need to be micromanaged when it comes to business, and I own that. And so, like, that's the difference for me. And I wonder for you if it was attached to the idea of, because this is what kept running through my head before I left, which was, okay, if I have ABC organization on my business card and I do all my compliance for them, I'm in-house with ABC, then even if internally I'm jumping up and down saying, please, 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 guys, we have to fix this. We have to fix this. It's very, very bad if the FDA finds this out. We need to be addressing this like ASAP. And my leadership says that is not our priority at this time, Edie. We appreciate you saying that, but pipe down. And the FDA knocks on our door the next day and it goes ugly. My name is attached to ABC, which is now attached to a warning letter, which is now public. And there's never going to be something in the public record that shows that I was the one behind the curtain going, we have to fix this. Please don't let this go on. It just shows that I was attached to ABC when this happened. And that's my career. That's the end. Whereas in the consulting realm, if I make a recommendation to ABC and they're a client, but I work for first class and they decide, hey, you know, screw you. We don't like your, your recommendation or just we're not going to do it. We can make a business decision whether or not that engagement should end. And even if they get in trouble down the road, my name's attached to first class. It's no longer attached to ABC. And I can show that we, when you were engaged with us, 100% recommended against this behavior. And it's why we disengaged. And so I'm finally in control of that risk. That was what kept me up at night was there's, there's no way with the resources I have to address the problems in front of me. And I often am told that what I am telling you is critical is not critical. And so I, I'm on the hook all the time. And I was just constantly getting so stirred up about it. Um, and I knew a lot of other folks who felt that way about in-house life versus like a consultant style role or just changing organizations, maybe to a small organization, you know, smaller risk, more conservative appetite, something like that um, mm -hmm. to try to alleviate some of that stress and burden. Because 
It, it, it is. It's a lot. Is that is that what you found? Like with the difference between being corporate versus being, you know, um, consultant? No, that wasn't it for me at all because uh, I'm a recovering trial lawyer. So um, <laughs> for, I did that for 25 years. So being a jerk. Oh, I don't know how you did that. Uh, being a jerk uh, <clears throat> comes pretty natural to me. So um, and I always think I'm right. So uh, if I give you advice. It's just when you're at that big of an organization, I mean, you just there's so many people who outrank you all the time and the politics of the organization outrank compliance each and every time. And I'm not picking on IU. I want to be really clear. They're a phenomenal organization. Um, It happens at every major academic medical center. I don't know anyone who works in AMC life in my world who hasn't experienced it. And for me, the autonomy made all the difference. When I worked under leaders who were like, do your thing. We know you are going to get it done. I could, I could handle it. You know what I mean? Like I could stomach all the rest, but when it was like, so let me get this straight, you know, you're underpaying me, you know, I can make triple this in the industry. You know, you aren't giving me the resources to address the issue. You know, we're going to butt heads on, you know, the priorities. And now you want to read me out and write me up because I came in at 801 today. But when the FDA shows up, who are you going to call? Oh yeah, that's right. That's me. And you're going to stick me in front of them with no help while you stare at the wall and wait for me to save your, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. If I can't be trusted to roll in at 801 when that's just how my morning went, then you shouldn't be trusting me in front of the FDA. That's just the most incongruent management style I can. And, and there's unfortunately, there's more of that in the world than there isn't. Um, and again, it's a huge organization. You can't standardize management styles. You can't standardize how people are promoted or when they're promoted or who gets what job over who else. Like that, it's you don't have to have a management background to be in leadership at an academic medical center. You have to have an MD. So I, I absolutely agree with that. But what I learned in the trial lawyer world was the uh, the person you want when it all goes down the tubes is the person who's done it before. And that means either the lawyer who successfully mm-hmm. prosecuted a criminal civil case, but who's number two in that equation? It's the guy who lost or the gal who lost. So um, I always figured if, yeah. if I got uh, one of those bad situations, well, uh, I could at least sell that as experience down the road. And at least in the trial lawyer world, that worked. So that's mm-hmm. kind of always been my mentality. I don't know how you did it. You know, that's one of those areas when I graduated from law school that everyone said like, oh, this is what Edie's going to do because I do a lot of public speaking and, you know, a lot of thinking on your feet type activities. And I was like, no, that just sounds so brutal. Were you firm side? Like, did you go full partner? Yeah. Oh, Tom. I burned out. So that's that. Really- I bet you did. <laughs> I bet you did. I'm surprised you lasted that long. I wouldn't have even lasted five years. Yeah. I mean, even at, at 25, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I know that about myself. Um, and I hate saying that. I wish I could say I was tough enough to do it, but it's not who I am. It's just not. It's just not. So one other thing you said uh, a little while back that I wanted to follow up on was you said the phrase phase one testing. I was wondering if you could walk us through the phases of testing and what's the role of, of compliance, or at least how you approached each phase from your perspective? Yeah, so, so the, there, there's a lot to be said about research compliance. I think the first and most important thing to understand is that the way regulations in the United States, and frankly, often outside of the United States, but we're just going to stick to the U.S. today, uh, are set up around research is really about, are you including certain populations, such as animals, known as preclinical research? Are you including human beings, right? Known quite often as clinical trials, like what we've seen in the news with COVID um, and all the research that's been done there. 
But the way the regulations are set up actually is, is really, are you including a human at all or not, right? And then based on risk level, we decide how much approval and oversight you need and reporting you need to do while you're actively engaging and, you know, what you would do to then close up the trial. Obviously, higher risk, like a phase one, which is often known in the clinical trial world as first in human, meaning we're trying a new drug, a new therapeutic, a new device in a healthy, otherwise very healthy population, but 100% for the first time. We've done significant preclinical work with animals. We have a good sense for the safety profile. This is not done lightly. It's very high risk. But obviously, it is the first time this happened in humans. And so we are not entirely sure of what will occur. We can't say with certainty. As you move forward in phases by numbers, you're getting further into the different stages of was it safe in a healthy population, ramping up toward introducing it to the actual intended sick or unhealthy population, seeing what its effect is there, right? And then from there, tweaking dosage levels or how you administer or receive the therapeutic um, all the way to the end of phase three, which is when you're beginning to quite often see either emergency use, um, expedited you know, or accelerated type of approval pathways like we've seen with COVID um, for the vaccination shots, um, or um, you have enough data that you are prepared to put in a full new drug application without any of the acceleration or expedited ways for the, in, to the FDA. But you're still going to move to phase four where, where you're continuing to study it broader and broader populations, gather more and more risk profile data. Now, if you're in social and behavioral research where you're more doing you know, a, a qualitative interview with someone about their feelings on a thought, maybe you're in psychology, so the risks are not as tangible, if you will, like you're not going to have an adverse event in the sense of reacting to a drug or device, but that doesn't mean what you're asking doesn't have ethical implications, um, that you might be talking about a sensitive subject, you might be asking someone about their uh, criminal behavior, right? So all things that still carry risk, but different types of risk. And so our regulatory infrastructure, and I focus specifically on humans, although I've worked a little bit in animals, you know, a little bit in other spaces, um, but our focus is through mechanisms like institutional review boards, which is the ethics committee that's going to approve your research for an organization to use humans. And then through larger regulatory bodies like the FDA, when you are trying to go for the approval of a new device, new drug, higher risk studies that involve humans, you're going to have an extra layer, right, then of regulation. Um, and so the thought being we're, we're doing a whole lot of things with these regulations proactively, our regulations are going to require, you know, that anyone who's engaged in research, who's working with patients, who's working with their data is trained on all these different elements, right? HIPAA, if it's relevant, GDPR. Um, they have to be trained on the individual systems and software you might be using. Everything needs to be password protected, login protected. Like they're going to learn so much about that. They're also going to learn if they're working with human subjects or animals about those particular regulations. Like why do you go through the IRB? Why do, how, what regulatory infrastructure tells them how to approve a study? And then once it's approved, what do you have to keep telling them and keep reporting in real time? And of those things you need to report are some of those things, lower risk reporting that could happen like at an annual date versus, oh my gosh, we just had a patient who had a serious adverse event. We need to notify the FDA. We need to notify, you know, the big pharmaceutical sponsor and anyone else who's working in this trial anywhere else in the world immediately. And so we have these mechanisms to proactively train to ensure that we actually have infrastructure 
where we're conducting our research. There's a process for everything we do, consenting, collecting the data, interacting with the patient, even something like reminding them to show up for their appointment has an SOP. I mean, we are really regulated tightly and that's what you're audited up against when you get a visit from the FDA or from Big Pharma. And then once you're actually on trial or patients are on drug or in device, right, then you're actively monitoring their safety and their data, right? There are a whole number of different mechanisms. There's plans, there's boards, there's committees, obviously there's IRB, the FDA, but making sure in real time they're safe. And that if, heaven forbid, I mean, no one wants to admit it and it's always the worst, but what if it's not working? What if whatever it is we're trying is not showing enough efficacy that it makes sense to keep testing it on humans, that it makes sense to go from phase one to phase two or phase two to phase three. At some point, you have to make that decision. And the idea and the notion that researching on humans is in fact a privilege, not a right, guides our regulation. And so it's really, it's a very different perspective. I spend a lot of time trying to help longtime providers, you know, MDs who are phenomenal in the clinical space, but they're new to the research space, understand that we're, we actually don't operate standard of care. Our regulation and view on things is just a hair different, even though I, I know clinical side is equally as regulated. Um, and that's really, that's the thought process, right, from our regulatory infrastructure. Animals have a similar protection process. You know, another committee, we call it Anaya Cook, that you go through that does the same type of oversight. Um, and they have some regulatory bodies as well. Um, and then, of course, you have, you know, once something is approved by the FDA, they're going to take on um, lifelong safety reporting. Um, so no one, no one really ever times out of all of this. It's just a matter of which phase are you in, which part are you in. And I, I specifically work, like I said, in that human subjects, like phase one to phase four. I don't necessarily help you write your new drug application, and I'm not going to help you with your IACUC. I'm going to help you as soon as you're involving humans. Um, and I'll do any of that part. You know, do you need the training? Do you need infrastructure set up? Or maybe you're scaling your infrastructure, right? Um, maybe you're about to go through an inspection or you need me to come do and my team to come do an inspection to get you ready. And then there's also the, the, what I call the oopsie land, right? Like you've had, you've had an oopsie, right? You've gotten a bad audit. Um, it doesn't always mean that you were trying to be nefarious or hurt in any way patients or that you even impacted patient safety, but that doesn't mean you don't get audited and have it go poorly. And, and you have to make changes quickly and promptly. And so knowing what those particular regulatory agencies are expecting um, is, is really my job and helping navigate that for any number of my clients. So hopefully that helps give a little picture. It's a very like intense world, but I feel like the last couple of years of COVID have peeled back the the curtain a little bit, right? Like people now when I say, my husband even says, you know, even four years ago, you would have told people, oh, I'm a healthcare attorney. Like if somebody just randomly asked, you know, at dinner or at the grocery store or something, he's like, and now you actually say clinical trials, like, because people know what that means. I'm like, I do. It's true. It's really fun. It's a unique, I mean, pandemic's not fun. That's not how I wanted it to happen. But um, it is unique to see the average healthcare consumer now more engaged uh, in all of this that is happening and has been for so many years because we very much were kind of this, you're either in our world or you're not. You know, you know we exist or you just don't. You just don't. If you've never been in research, you've never worked in healthcare, you, you just wouldn't know why I would do what I do. Your client base, it would seem to me that the need for compliance is well known, that you don't have to come in and explain why you need uh, to have this rigor around your compliance, but we 
read horror stories of startups who have failed in compliance or didn't pay attention to compliance. Uh, is that really something different than not knowing about compliance? Is it uh, not putting the money in? Is it saying we don't need it yet? Right. So I will say the percentage that I see of people who are like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do that and screw it, don't care, I'm not going to do it, don't care, is just nil to none. I, I have I've seen, you know, I have had it happen, but it's been very, very, very rare. Um, the majority of the time are either money or we don't know what we don't know factors, right? Um, so I wouldn't say that just because you are a known prestigious institution that that in any you know way and you have tons of resources and tons of offices of people like me, that is not bulletproof you. And in fact, a lot of times those are unfortunately some of the folks that fall the hardest um, because, because they have such an incredible reputation and people think, gosh, how could that happen there, right? But that has to do with a little bit of the ego. And as I said before, a little bit of the, the competing priorities in a really large organization. So just because you have the money doesn't mean it's all allocated to you, doesn't mean it's all allocated to compliance, right? So the attitude from the top down in your organization is 100% going to tell me how committed you are aren't to that, right? And then it's it's really most of the people I work with and Again, some of this is intentional. I've definitely had clients who fell into that bucket of we know this is something we need and we actually have the money to address it, but it's just not a priority right now. And I want to differentiate that from I don't care. It's not I don't care. It's just, you know what, we're landing something else in another department right now and that's a bigger deal. And that's what you're up against in your really large organizations. And it's why you have a lot of turnover in your compliance departments because they feel like you don't care unless it's going to make the news. When you go a step down, slightly less resourced and infrastructure of research environments in uh, clinical trials, you know, or research, then it's almost always a, we don't know what we don't know. Maybe you scaled up really, really fast. You know what I mean? And you moved into offering certain services that you thought didn't cross a line to being engaged in research, but actually they do, right? So you've been doing everything that your organization thought you should be doing for not being engaged in research and kind of being on the sidelines, actually an expert like me is going to come in and go very technically because you do A, B, or C, you're engaged. And so your program should look like this, not like this. Right. Um, and then it's a matter of can that organization really hear that? And how can we come up with a meaningful solution that they can afford, that they can actually implement and that they can actually sustain. Um, and then that's usually where you hit your next tick up, which is just money. It costs money. It takes time. It costs money. It takes expertise. Um, you know, and folks really, really want with the, with the onset of Google research, right. And Google as a resource, people love to think that they can just copy and paste something that they find out there and use it. And maybe that'll work for a couple of years, but you know, once you really start playing on the big porch with the big dogs, they're not just going to look at a piece of paper. They're going to come in and audit your processes and your workflows. They're going to ask your employees questions. And it's going to become pretty obvious pretty fast. You just Googled something and copy and pasted it. And you don't really know what you're doing. Um, and that's the point where you have to make it a priority. You know, you have to decide what's on the line, like what happens. And where I see a lot of clients struggle is there are some really gray zones. Like when you talk about like, HIPAA and GDPR and some of the data sharing that happens in our world. 
it's very regulated based on all the sources of sharing of data, patient data that we thought existed or that were most common when HIPAA was written in the late 90s. Well, that's not true anymore. Now patients are advocating for themselves. They're sharing their own data. They're going out and deciding who they want to use. It's not one doctor's office sharing to another doctor's office or one covered entity sharing to another covered entity all the time anymore, right? And so again, we run into the spirit of the regulation applies. You know, if it was written today, they would write these gray zones in, but it doesn't actually say it today. So does my client have to abide today? What's the best practice there, right? And I think those are the most difficult situations for me, at least, to work with clients on. Because if there's a clear regulation, something's required and you're not doing that, I mean, I'm just going to say, look, you have to, you don't have a choice. And if you say to me, I don't care about this, I'm probably going to go, yeah, I don't think like we're going to work together anymore. You know, that's not going to work out. Um, if you say to me, I, I am hearing you, Edie, and I want to do this, I'm not sure how I can pull this off with my current priorities or my current budget, I'm happy to have that conversation and say, okay, here, here's the low-hanging fruit. Here's how we could prioritize it. Um, because I don't want cost to be the sole reason. Like if you really want to be compliant and you are trying hard to do that, I want to try to make that as possible for you as I can. I don't think that should be the sole reason. But if the desire isn't there, all the money in the world is not going to make it happen. Like I, I, if you just straight up are saying, I have no interest. But like I said, that's a small percentage. It's almost always, we don't know what we don't know. And it can be very difficult when you're dealing with clients who might have, you know, 15 initials after their name and frankly are the best at what they do and really are curing cancer. They're a medical oncologist in clinical trial research. Like they can say that and it's not a farce. But do they know FDA compliance the way I do? No, that's not their job. It's my job. So how do I find a way to not harm their ego or make them, you know, the, the, the expression I always use is, you know, you've gone out and started this company that's doing research or you're involved in this particular research team or research project, probably because you're passionate about it. It's your baby. And if I come in and, you know, tell you your baby's ugly, you're not going to like me very much. Whereas if I come in and tell you, I just want to talk about a few things that we could do to enhance your baby's already cute appearance, you might hear that a little better, right? And so I spend an amazing amount of time in the EQ world of figuring out how to tell a client they don't know what they don't know without pissing them off or making them feel small. Because if they do, that's it. They're not going to implement or listen to me after that. Um, and I think all compliance experts do. I mean, what about you? I try to just... Uh do podcasts now. So I don't have to worry about Lucky that. Lucky you. Yeah. Lucky you. Yeah. Maybe that's what I should do. No, I say that. I have wonderful clients. I, I mean, like I said, I, I very much brand myself in a way that I attract the clients that I most enjoy working with. And I have been, I should, you know, be incredibly upfront since many of them may listen to this and I want them to know how much I appreciate them. I get to work with some of the coolest people. Some of the most I don't want to say disruptive because that sounds so negative, but just some of the most innovative minds who are in it for some of the most damned noble reasons and who have seen what I've seen in the industry. And instead of just wanting to complain about it or be frustrated about it, which we all do, we all do, right? Uh, actually fix it. Like, okay, so now how do we fix these problems and having that mindset? So I'm very lucky. But again, it that wasn't always true, you know? Like that was that was me really starting to shape and take the wheel and say like this is what I want to do and and also say to some of the folks that I always thought I wanted my client roster I'm so sorry but this isn't going to work out for us you know let me get you in the hands of someone that you're just going to work better with 
it's a better fit for you. So the non-flippant answer is that because of my marketing strategy uh, consists of answering the phone, I only get clients uh, who want my services. And generally, they are either in trouble or know they need something before they get in trouble. So uh, so I'm brought in. Uh-huh. Yeah, You're so. in a good position there. You're in a good position. Let me ask, uh, in every type of compliance, there's a regulator. Mm-hmm. In the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, there's the prosecutors at the Department of Justice. In your world, there's the FDA and everything in between, export control, mm-hmm. money laundering, data privacy, data protection, cryptocurrency, uh, all of those regulators. And I wanted to ask, the Department of Justice is typically not collaborative in terms of their work under the FCPA. Uh, at right. the Department of Commerce in trade control, the regulators are very collaborative. You can pick up the phone and call and ask them a question. Where does uh, the regulators uh, fall on that scale right. in your space? So that's a really interesting question because we have the same thing, right? It, it So it all depends. Uh, so something as large as the FDA is going to depend on where you are and who you interact with, right? Like we're in Indianapolis where we actually have a regional FDA office. So the con of that is if you're IU or any other large institution in the area, you get audited a little more frequently because they're literally across town. They don't even have to travel. Having said that, the pro of that is you know the auditors who come to your facility on a regular basis. You can build a meaningful relationship with them. I've often seen the same individual at several instances and so having, not that they can show any type of favoritism, nor should they, but you can build a personal relationship. Um, I think that's very true if you're someone, for example, who's always working with Cedar or always working with CBER um, and, you know, consistently has a high volume of work. But if you're just, you know, a sole research team who's only going to put one or two drugs out there ever and study them, you may not have the opportunity to have that level of relationship. It doesn't mean it'll be contentious. It just doesn't mean it's going to be quite as friendly. Now, there's other regulatory parts that would be, right? So if you're at a large academic medical center, chances are you have your own institutional IRB, meaning the same folks are reviewing these applications for you to do research with humans over and over and over, and you should get to know them. They're a wealth of information and knowledge. Likely they're going out all over your campus and doing proactive education, holding office hours to help you fill out better applications so you get your approval faster. Like, they're almost always trying to have a really meaningful relationship. And most of your commercial IRBs, I've had a client who's a commercial IRB, and I know they took it very seriously as well. Like they recognized they weren't institutionally based. But if you were a client of them and you needed help and you wanted to pick up the phone, they wanted to provide that level of customer service. So I do think at the IRB level, you see more of those local relationships, resources. Because let's face it, if you submit a better application, that makes their life better. Right. Like that, that, that's just less edits, less back and forth, quicker to approval, which makes you happy. It makes their metrics look good. I mean, it's a win for them to create a relationship meaningfully. And I know having been like a major cancer center, sometimes even the cancer centers, because they're usually, frankly, the largest client of the institutional IRB because they have the most volume. They'll even train their staff who are filling out the applications on both sides together to create that collegiality and that ability to have partnerships and pick up the phone and talk about what's happening. Um, within DHHS, once you get that broad, like once you get all the way up there, then it's, it just depends. Like your Office for Human Research Protections, which is who's over IRBs, 
they're not quite as friendly. It's not that you can't call and pick up the phone. They're just not as involved unless there's a problem. Like you, they're the regulatory agency who, if they show up at your door, it's got to be really bad. And so it just, there's a certain connotation there of like, you don't just pick up the phone and ask them a question um, because you're only going to hear from them if you're doing something really wrong. And you should really more work with your local IRB because that's the extension of OPART for you. But for example, the Office of Research Integrity, the DHH's Office of Federal Office of Research Integrity, um, can actually be incredibly collaborative. When I was at IU in Research Integrity, which is, of course, like falsification, fabrication, plagiarism, those pieces, I, uh, I had a phenomenal experience, actually, working alongside with their leadership, calling them about cases, asking them procedural questions, hosting research and training where they were, you know, paying for it and present to help give, you know, their mindset. Um, I know that can change with different leaders and, you know, changes in leadership, but it's the same in our world. You have some agencies that, you know, you can pick up the phone and they'll be really, they actually like want to work alongside you. And you have some who are very difficult to work with and you just, you just wouldn't get on their radar unless you had to. Um, so hundred percent. And that gives you a little bit of a perspective, right. Of those different ones. Um, and those different types of relationships that you can have with them. Um, now I will say you have different relationships too. If you have, if you have a lot of pharmaceutical sponsors like big pharma, they're going to send monitors on a regular basis into your space. And that is very personal dependent. There's definitely certain pharmaceutical companies that are known for being a little easier to work with than others. I'm not going to name names. I'm not trying to start anything. Having said that, I do think that it's a very interpersonally dependent the individual who comes to your site. Yes, they're you know, representing a pharmaceutical company, but they're probably a contractor who's never even stepped foot at the main headquarters of that pharmaceutical company. And so it's really about, did they make a good hire? Did they check references? And, you know, were they emotionally intelligent enough to hire someone who should be representing their company? And then that person comes to your site. And so then that is your impression of that pharmaceutical company, even though, again, that person's probably a contractor. Um, And where I have had the most contentious, I mean, hands down, most contentious conversations has unfortunately been with pharmaceutical monitors and auditors. I've never experienced some of the situations with an FDA auditor, even in a four-cause non-notice audit that I have experienced during a monitoring visit with pharmaceutical sponsors monitor. They have a lot of authority without a lot of check, and they're there, and they know you are a hostage. And that can be an incredible learning experience, and it can be uh, an incredibly negative experience as well. Um, And unfortunately, because it's so commonly a contracted position, there's a little less due diligence that goes in. Right. Whereas I, I mean, I'm sure it happens. I have no doubt, you know, there's, there's bad actors everywhere, unfortunately, but I just feel like I've never seen an auditor on behalf of an agency, the size of the FDA behave in some of the ways that I've seen some of those individual study monitors behave. I think there's a different vetting process and a different expectation. Unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. You're totally good. I know we've run long and I think we could probably talk for hours. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Seriously, really appreciate it. Would absolutely love to flip the table and interview you sometime and hear about all this trial experience and pick your brain about some of the compliance situations you've been in because I can only imagine they are of interest. We'll leave it at that. Before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on you or First Class Solutions or really any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best way for them to find out? Yeah, so I would 
would say hit me up on LinkedIn, EDT Edens, uh, E-D-Y-E-T as in Tom, E-D-E-N-S. You could also email me. It's my first name, E-D-Y-E period, last name E-D-E-N-S at first class solutions. That's plural.com. Um, of course, I would hope they would reach out to you, Tom. You would just send them my way. Um, but always happy to hear from folks. Always happy to continue the conversation. Um, and always happy to hear from others about their compliance stories and their experiences. I think that's, I mean, as much as it's all about war stories and camaraderie and a little bit of whining, um, I also think it's about learning, right? Like hearing, okay, wow, you had this incredible situation in front of you. What did you do? How did you handle it? And was that a win or was that a, a, a you know, a fail that we're learning from here? Um, and if you could do it all over again, what would you do? You know what I mean? Like, I love hearing those types because I do get caught in some of those situations where no one's ever been here before and I don't know what to do. So, uh, anyone and everyone, please reach out. I'd love to talk compliance. Well, Edie, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with me. I look forward to continuing this conversation. All right. You too. Thanks so much, Tom. This is Tom Fox. I wanted to thank Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine for letting me post my interview with Edie Edens on the Great Women in Compliance. Mary and Lisa will be back next week to begin their regular series, spring series, on Great Women in Compliance. I hope you'll join us all next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.